0: your front door, your sanity. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has other great podcasts like Marketing Made Simple, hosted by Dr. J.J. Peterson. Marketing Made Simple brings you practical tips to make your marketing easy, and more importantly, make it work. Now, if any of these topics sound interesting to you, you're going to love his show, How to Write and Deliver Captivating Speeches, how to market yourself into a new job, how design can help and potentially hurt your revenue, and how to create a social media ad strategy that works. If these topics hit home and they're things that you wanna learn about, go listen to Marketing Made Simple wherever you get your podcasts. Today, you're gonna hear me live at Inbound 2022 in Boston, Massachusetts. I bring on Joseph Martin, Eric Sue, and Stormy Simon on stage where we spoke about what it takes to bring a company from zero to a hundred million dollars. What's going on HubSpot? How's it going today? How's everybody doing? We're great. Good, good, (laughs) good, good, good. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for sitting down. Today I brought three of my really good friends and what we, what we titled this session was Zero to 100 million. and Million. I'm going to walk through all these incredible people and what they've done, but what I want you to take away from this, and as I, I have to back up. I got excited. My name's Scott Clary. I host Success Story. I host a podcast, obviously part of the incredible HubSpot Podcast Network, where I speak to some of the most incredible people, and I unpack their life, their playbook, everything they have accomplished, the highs, the lows, the wins, and the losses. Now. What I want to achieve today, the zero to 100 million, it's not just for somebody that's building something from scratch. It's to learn the lessons of all these incredible people, what they've uncovered at the various stages of their businesses. And hopefully, if you're a founder, if you're a side hustler, you can apply that to your business. But also, if you're an employee, if you're looking for where to land next, you can see what good business looks like and you can make more educated choices so that you don't end up wasting your life in your career. So I want to introduce these incredible people. So just to my left, I have Yosef Martin. Yosef was the founder of BoxyCharm. Now, BoxyCharm is an online subscription beauty service. BoxyCharm made Inc's 500, uh, Inc 500 list is one of the fastest growing companies in the nation in 2018, 2019, and 2020. And in 2020, he sold BoxyCharm for over $500 million to Ipsy. Uh, to the left of Yosef, I have Eric Sue. Now, Eric, is the founder of the ad agency, Single Grain. He hosts the Marketing School and Leveling Up podcast. They have over 65 million downloads. He also invests in incredible companies like Eight Sleep, Betterment, Lime, and Synthesis. And then to the left of Eric, I have Stormy Simon. And Stormy is the founder CEO of the recently launched Mother Ruggers. Now that's a new venture in textile, but uh, previous to that, she spent 15 years of her career for the e-commerce retailer, Overstock.com. She began her tenure as a temp and eventually rose to the position as president of the nearly $2 billion company in 2013. So first, before we kick this off, let's have a round of applause for these incredible guests. So I wanna I want to break down this segment into three three tranches: zero to one million, one to ten million. And 10 million to 100 million, and the strategies and tactics that you will deploy at each stage of a business. So I'll I'll pass it over. I'll pass it over to Yosef. When you're taking something from zero to one, when you're getting something off the ground, what are best practices? What do you have to think about? How do you make sure that that
1: thing has a little bit of runway so you can take it to the next level? So my experience building my first business before Boxichum, getting from zero to a million was kind of like exploratory matter where you don't really know anything, so you start learning how to code, build a website, marketing, buy products, talk to people. You pretty much go without any organized pattern and you try a million things that work or don't work. Eventually once you accomplish the first million, by then already you you have kind of like a little pamphlet in your head, all the do's and don't do's. from there, you can scale the business to 10 or 20 or 100 million dollars. But that first phase is kind of like where you build your intuition for your business—all those little, uh, I would say, unformed uh, moves in your business until you start forming strategies later on. Eric, what about you? Yeah, I'll keep mine brief. Um, so
2: it's a lot of hand-to-hand combat in the beginning, and you are, to Joseph's point, you're trying to figure things out as you go and some people are like, yeah, you should focus, but I think in the beginning, you really are throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks, and you're looking for something that's repeatable, and once you have that, um, then you start to really ramp it, but if you do the math on it, it's it's 83K a month, and let's say you're running a services type biz- business, you have eight clients paying you 10 grand a month, or you, know, you can chop up the numbers however you may, it's actually, you'll get there sooner than you think, and I actually do think some people do get, um, some people kind of fall into the first million, which some people get fortunate, some people take longer. Um, and Stormy, you have a,
0: a special circumstance, because when you read Overstock, you weren't building it from scratch. You okay. came in. they were at 18 million. I mean, it's, it's, it's not not impressive that you went from that to two billion while you were president there. But now you're starting again. Yeah. So you're living it. So Yosef so had an exit. Eric is, is, he's already built things and it's running and it's good. You're starting from scratch. So when you started something, what's your take to market from zero to one?
3: So it was very different as an entrepreneur. So I just want to say to all the entrepreneurs out there, even talking about as an entrepreneur, went through overstock, did that whole thing all fancy. As an entrepreneur, I am sweating my ass off every day. It's a completely different game. So kudos to everyone out there that does it because zero to a million is some of the hardest pennies you will ever scrape together. I'm in it right now. I'm doing every single thing myself. And I think by getting that grit, your hands dirty, keeping them dirty, and knowing every step and every penny that that company's spending um, is the only way to get to zero to a million, at least for me so far. So I'm at like $11,000 right now. (laughs) It's huge to me.
0: (laughs) And, And another thing, the most important thing when you're getting a company off the ground is to get your first few customers. So a combination of having a great product, let's assume we all have a great product, but sales, marketing, uh, is it reaching out to friends and family? Is it like, What's the strategy to get your first say 150 customers so that you can prove out that whatever you're building has some semblance of product market fit?
3: For me, um, I did a lot of market research before I entered into these rugs because it sounds really boring, but they're quite exciting. They're all machine washable. I know what percentage of the market is machine washable. I know more about rugs than I ever would have thought in my lifetime. I know about the backing, the weave, the machine, every single thing about it. I spent one year learning. I flew to Turkey. I understand everything about these rugs. And that's how I know that the market is ready for it. And I'm secure and confident. And if I go to investors, I'll be able to show them exactly what they need to hear as to why it is special. if I hadn't done that, I would be less likely to take the risk 100%, knowing that there's daylight in the market is so helpful.
2: Yeah, so for me, it's, how do you create that no-brainer offer? And so, you know, for example, let's go back to services because we've grown our, the agency in an eight-figure business and it's like, okay, how do, but how do we start in the very beginning? It's, um, if, let's say I went to Yosef, I wanted to, you know, let's say he's operating BoxyCharm. So instead of like every other agency out there, where it's like, oh, yo, Joseph, uh, can you buy our services? And we do X, Y, and Z, and here's a laundry list. It's like, hey, like we saw this, this, and this. Here's a video of it. And by the way, we'll do it for you for free. You don't need to pay anything, and we can talk about it later. That's a lot easier for him to reply to versus like what everyone else is saying. Um, So
1: uh, it does go back to a lot of hand-to-hand combat though. Yeah, so selling makeup, imagine. uh, I didn't know much about makeup when I started (laughs) selling makeup, but I found out that in order for me to succeed wasn't doing a market research, which probably I should have. Uh, it was more try, fail, but fail very fast, and just modify based on complaints that you get. I would get lots of complaints at first if people didn't like certain products, and every time I start learning, kind of like the space how to do it for boxy at least right. Um, the first clients are the most exciting ones. Eventually. Uh, You find out that the first clients are not the first client that you actually wanted because we have to change our entire business concept. Uh, The iteration of BoxyCharm went about two times. But it was literally something that I took from my previous company. I opened two companies. The first company, I just learned search engine optimization, marketing, and all that. So I, I used all that knowledge to kind of create awareness. And what I did learn is that when you want to create a product market fit, you get to know when you hit the... Mark, when, when people are excited over your product, once you, okay, that was it. Now that is a box that they're excited about. You kind like of get a perspective between, between the two. It's kind of like getting uh, a non-dairy, non-sugar ice cream versus sugar, dairy ice cream. You know what is the right ice cream. I don't need to tell this is the right ice cream. right? It is the same with us, so we would modify ourselves based on what good is, and then we had perspective to move on. Okay, so now that's the
0: one million, one to 10. So now we have to figure out how to scale up everything, probably bring in some really great people. Um, so whoever wants to take it away, building from 1 to
2: 10, what are best practices, next steps? I can start. Um, you know, when you start to go to 10, 10 and up, it's, a lot of it is, is operational, right? So, um, you know, working off entrepreneurial operating systems such as Traction, that, that's one. Or you can use another one called Scaling Up. Um, but at least that's an operating system to run on your, your, your business on, right? So there's a weekly cadence, there's a quarterly cadence, there's an annual cadence, um, just so you can catch up and then set goals. Um, and then people talk a lot about culture, right? You know, When you're zero to one million, you don't think about culture. In fact, you think culture is stupid. At least I did, right? Culture is stupid. It's all about, uh, look look at all the things I'm doing. And then you realize culture is everything. And then um, I'll, we'll talk about people after, because that's where the... That, that, here's the funny thing, even at eight figures, even up to 100, 100 million plus, um, I did an event last week and we're just talking with with a handful of uh, founders and we're like, you know, at the end of the day, forget all the tactics, forget all the marketing stuff. And it's just like, it's all about people. But then nobody wants to hear the talks about people, but like, it's all that matters. Yeah. Well, I mean, like if if you, I think that what's going to increase the momentum of you
0: getting to 10 million, 100 million plus is how quickly you adapt and, and, and internalize the idea of, Finding great people, finding a culture that works, and we can even define what culture is and what culture isn't, and then making sure that that's going to, you know, subsidize your skill sets, uh, you know, elevate your growth. But uh, Joseph, when you're when you're bringing to 10 million, you bring com- you company to 10 million. Um, what do you look for? Like we spoke about operations, people are important,
1: obviously. Um, what's your thing? So for me, it was very simple, uh, very similar to what uh, Eric said. You want to increase your, sales, increase your sales force, and it took me a while to understand that. I, I learned that, okay, I need to actually build a team that can be functional, and it was about the operation. It was about building uh, a small business size operation that can sustain the marketing, the input of, of requests, and then output of product. That was literally what, what it took, and it took me years to figure it out. Um, but once you do, you scale from 1 million to 10 million right away, it was about two, three years uh, to make it. But the transition, took some time to actually get it in your head out to actually perform. And then let's talk about people.
0: Who is the best person to bring into the organization at that level?
1: Um, you wanna go?
3: I I think that one to 10 million, or it, you know, when he talked about doing that in two to three years, so zero to one million is a grind. Like you're like climbing up the hill, pushing the snowball up the hill. One to 10, You've got, you're going to run, because of the quickness, you're catching speed, you're going to be doubling. So you've got to think of that staff almost interchangeable. You know, even from the 20 mark, when I entered Overstock, there were different needs at different times for different people. And you still don't have the luxury of having a big staff. You know, your money's going back in your business at that point. So it's very different to say who, it's hard to say who's the right position at the right time, because that's a moving target. Don't get attached to anybody. Your early grunt, grunt, the grinders, like the hustlers, getting your hands dirty in the beginning, they love that. But they may not be the ones to be your executives at five million, but they might be the ones that bled for you in the beginning and different skill sets. So, it's tough to say.
2: Could I add something real quick? So, one thing that I found helpful, especially from one to ten million, is uh, the concept of a task prioritization chart. So. You know what am I doing? That's ten dollars an hour, a hundred dollars an hour, a thousand dollars an hour, up to a hundred thousand or a million dollars an hour. So that might be M and A, right? Mm-hmm. But ten dollars an hour might be like me um, taking out the trash for Yosef, right? Um, so every quarter, what I used to try to do is um, try to delegate, create a new list of responsibilities because that's what a job is, right? And try to delegate fifteen to twenty percent. But um, but I, I think the the point is there's no there's no one clear cut. Um, and and you hire. and you obviously you're taking on your highest
0: value tasks as an entrepreneur Correct. founder. And everything else that is potentially a lower value task that isn't that, you know, that $100 per hour task, that's what you're finding somebody for. It could be gig economy, it could be hiring internal. And Yosef, uh, I'll let you answer for, for people as well, but I also want to flip the script and understand when employees are starting to look for startup opportunities and they're starting to go into companies, potentially what are some of the red flags they should look for that maybe founders are exhibiting where they shouldn't land there because
1: that's not going to be helpful for their career. I think when you walk into an office, you can tell the vibe. That's the first thing. The second thing is you need to see if the company is growing. You're allowed to ask questions. You're interviewing the company the same way they interview you. And that's actually, it's something I like to see from people because they know their worth. They're about to go and put the best hours in the day, the best years of their life in that company. And they want to make sure that there is a vision. And it's okay to interview whoever you speak to. What is the vision from the company? Do you have any pillars? What is the the main goal for the company? It's important to ask those questions. What about for hiring, hiring the right people? When you hire the right people, you'll get experience. I don't think those two minutes that we have are going to be enough to learn, but I think learn one thing. If they're not good, fire them faster than your competition, if you retain the, the role
0: If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. To hire great talent fast, and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/clary. Just go to indeed.com/clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com/clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed.
1: Hunker people in your organization longer than your competition, then you're gonna lose. So make sure you do it faster. In time, you're going to learn what's good. You'll have perspective.
0: Okay, so now we're scaling from 10 to 100. And then we're going through these very quickly. Like we we only we have a whole bunch of questions. I thought we were just going to do the, the 0 to 1, 1 to 10, 10 to 100, but we have some time. So I'll go through some other stuff after. So lessons from 10 to 100. So now we're truly scaling up. We have operations. We know what works, we know what doesn't. So what do we think of?
1: In my case, uh, everything was the same from, say, Ten to fifty million, but it was more from fifty to five hundred million that is a completely different showing organization well i'm telling you uh, yeah I mean I am showing up we did five hundred million so uh, the, the reason it was different it 's because there was almost the same amount of employees when we were ten million to fifty million. It was a completely different organization from from fifty to five hundred We had to hire many more people we had to have offices all over the world we had to have uh, a location, a fulfillment location that we built that's the size of 12 football fields. It was just completely different. It's an enterprise and you have to get uh, uncomfortable to rebuild your business all over again and you have to find the right people, touching what you said, you want to bring a person that has been in a business that has transformed from say 10, 20 million to a billion. Person that has seen the transformation is a person that you want to be next to you that can tell you this is the time when you actually change it up. This is what you do now. So. Once you find that person, it's a lot easier for you to hire corporate people with experience of a startup as well. Okay, good. So uh, Eric, from 10 to 100.
2: Yeah. So you know, interesting. When we're in the the speakers lounge a little bit ago, um, we were talking to a friend, and uh, you know, he bootstrapped his company, right? And um, you know, now it's doing nine figures a year. And the playbook, literally, that I, I talked to you guys about is is hiring people that have been there, done that. Um, and here's the thing, like, you know, when I talk to a lot of people that that have done that, it's like. No, it's still a crapshoot, right? It's still You're still lucky if you're 50-50, if you, if you get 50% of them right. And so, um, like I mentioned earlier, it's all about people, right? And then when you when you hear like a Yosef or anyone that's taking a company to a billion plus or so, they just talk about people and culture, and you hear the same thing, but it's just not as sexy to hear anymore. But literally, that's what it is. And here's the thing. You, if you're the, you're the CEO, you're the founder, you're the best recruiter. And so like, you know, a lot of the irons that I have in the, in the, in the fire right now, like these are people that you're gonna pay um, Four or five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand a year, and then add on bonuses on top. Like, here's the thing: when you're paying these people this much, actually, at the end of the day, you find that the quality does get better. Um, at least that's what I found. So, it's stormy.
3: One would hope.
2: Yeah, I would hope so too. <laughs> if you get
3: six hundred thousand a year, you better do a dang good job. Um, what was the? Oh, ten to a hundred million. To 100. Outrageous growth. Like, I would, I would think during that time for me at Overstock, there was so much focus on the details, on the dollars that you're spending. Like, I can't stress that enough. Those pennies, when you're at a hundred million and you can tweak something out of your customer service cost, that slight percentage, you'd be surprised at the payoff that gets. And those were some of the wins um, that I was able to do in our early days was just find that little piece that you might turn the knob a little and bring in just a couple pennies per motion, per transaction whatever it is, but those start adding up at 100 million. So in addition to finding your people, your operations that you're setting up now become extremely important. Those things you were like, oh yeah, David does that. Out in the warehouse, David does it. You better go get up and David's stuff. What exactly is David doing? Because before, you know, when he's doing the job of five people because the business isn't there, and then all of a sudden, it's worthy. It happens quick. And uh, those pennies, I'm telling you, I did half my success stories were literally digging in an Excel spreadsheet and going, there it is. If I tweak that, a bunch of stuff in the whole system will come out. And that system starts getting big at 100 million, bigger at 500 million. Founders can't look at everything at that time. So setting those operations tight focused, making sure that every step is the one you wanna take, the shortcut. Not the extra employee, not that this guy needs a job, your shortcut. This is the other thing that happens is you have to get cutthroat with those same people. But um, that's an exciting time. If you hit 100 million, that's the happiest thing ever. 10 million's the best, but 100 million is some good times.
0: So say we go into a few different business topics, and I wanna, so I'm gonna go into marketing and sales, I'm gonna go into people, I'm gonna go into biz ops, and then I wanna pull out some trending topics in each and just get your opinion on on these items, okay? So for marketing and sales, I wanna go a step further than social. I wanna go into community. I I wanna go into community building because I think Dharmesh was speaking about community the other day. It's a very trending concept, but I think it's very hard for somebody who's in a marketing organization to figure out how to build it properly. So what does community really mean? How does it go a step further from from social media? And why is
1: it so important for your business? How do you build it? How do you leverage it? So a community is a group of people with the same interest in the same space, activating together. That's how we formed our community. That's how we decided to look at this. There was a way where we said, okay, we have a community, but it's coming organic. Can we actually engineer it? So the space, mostly today you'll see it in, um, in Discord groups, you can find Facebook, Facebook groups, that's the digital space. And then the next phase for that is gonna be, let's do meetups. So once you do it, you have to think that in a community, in order for the community to be passionate, it needs to be not how many people are there, it's how passionate the people are there. I much rather have a group of 50,000 super advocate that don't stop talking about my company versus six million that knows about me. So that's a community. How did, you, how did you build yours for Boxytrum? Uh I was breaking my back for many years. What, what, what I did was in 2017, I found out that uh, there are Facebook groups and they talk about BoxyChamp every month, so I joined them and I told them, I'm the founder, I'll let you know before anyone else what's going to be next month in a box. Everyone wanted to join those forums and I ended up supporting them also on our channels, but what I ended up doing was I would join those forums and let them know that anyone that would open, and organically, their own fan page on Instagram or Facebook group, I will do live with them, I will help them build their community. And every month, about three times a month, I would jump into those communities, and it was a big event for them because there was some information drop about next month, and they're always the first to know, and someone would always go viral. And I would always make sure that their activation would be go search for BoxyCharm at that time. I would tell them tomorrow at 3 p.m., I will let you know somewhere what's going to be in the box. So at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone would search BoxyCharm. You'd have about 300,000 people searching BoxyCharm, and we would trend. You would literally go on Google uh, Google Trend, and you would see within the hour the spike for BoxyCharm, and anyone that would say anything about the company would go viral, which would create uh, a halo effect because people said, well, every time I talk about Boxy, I go viral. So people kept talking about BoxyCharm, and that created kind of like a a halo effect overshadowing the community itself. Good. Okay, Eric.
2: Um, to me, community is a retention mechanism. Um, who here actually owns an NFT? Show of hands. Does anyone own an NFT? Okay, one person. One
0: person.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah. wrong so conference. <laughs> l- let me give you an example. Um, so I, we, we launched an NFT project uh, maybe a month ago or so, and um, here, here's how you break it down. It's, it's product-led growth, but for NFTs, right? It's, it's, so we, we launched a free NFT, and um, you know, our Discord went to 8,000 people, right? So imagine launching something, people want to keep it, and then um, now we have a vibrant Discord with 8,000 people that are engaging. And the way I look at it is, if you're trying to keep people, the name of the game is retention, right? I think a lot of us are here, are, are in subscription, right? And if you want to keep people here, people buy your product, but what happens at the end of the day is they actually end up staying for the community, which is actually what happened with uh, with BoxyCharm. So that's how I look at it. I think um, if you want to you know, extend, you want Good net dollar retention or whatever it is, uh, you have strong community. Stormy?
3: Well, your commu- communities are interesting right now, right? Because we start on social media, and then we all found each other, and then we can hashtag to find each other. So it's like we can participate as consumers in all the communities that we want. So, for like, you know, Mother Ruggers, how am I gonna build a community? Well, first of all, you have to be a Mother Rugger, which I can tell you guys are. You know, these are rugs that you live on, live with. How do you build a personality for a rug? I'm actually struggling with this right now, but we're starting to find our stride. Like, how do we do it? Well, we'll probably NFT these babies. Like we have really cool ideas, but the community for something like, you know, I don't have a subscription box. is trying to create a brand and get people interested. And once they're interested, they can learn about how we make them and why it's good and how you know, mindful we are of the universe and what we're actually doing. Um, and that's where I'm coming from, is like to build something of value that attracts the people versus go to the people first.
0: And I think it's finding those people and and continuing mm -hmm. to serve them, right? Yeah, it's going, I mean, hashtag ruggables,
3: that's where I'm going. 100%. Yeah, that's, you know, that's that's where you go. So you find those people that are engaging in other like-minded places and make yourself known.
0: Let's move on to people. So we, we already spoke about hiring, finding the right people, different people for different stages of business. One thing, again, a buzzword, culture. And I think it's confused and I think people don't really understand what it is and what it isn't. So, what is culture? What isn't it? And how can you use it, leverage it, because Eric, even you mentioned that's one of the most important things that's overlooked, especially when you're starting out.
2: Um, how do we use it to improve our business? I can go. Um, so you know, early days when you talk about culture, it's like, oh, what are your mission? What are your vision? What are your values? So, um, core thing is the core values, right? Everyone talks about those, but like really don't just, in the early days at least what I did was I just copied core values that sounded good. So I might just <laughs> go co- copy BoxyCharm or Overstock and uh, that doesn't work because those aren't true to you, but those are what you hire and fire on. So just, Joe talks about hiring slow, firing fast, right? But if you have, you need an operating system for that. Um, and culture really to me at the end of the day is what people are talking about when nobody else is in the room and how people are acting at the same time.
1: Well, I think that culture built over time uh, within your organization. And uh, if you want to build a good culture, start by make sure you don't hire assholes. That's the uh, easiest part. And from there, things will fall into place. Yeah, how do you know if they're, a, they're You, you fire them fast. You <laughs> fire them fast. Fi- no, because I, I, no matter how good you are, if you treat other people horrible in the organization, there is a debt. There is a culture debt that's going to come and hunt you. So I'm not, if you're a rock star and you're just sitting in front of a computer, you happen to be an asshole, but there's no one else, fine. But if you work in a group, a group would always outshine one individual. So it is very important to first nick those out and make sure that you have a good, uh, a good balance. And then eventually, if, if the company has, okay, I think this is important to say, okay, this is nothing political, but what it is is I found that when you bring a group of people from different diversities that particular group would outperform a particular group that they all look the same. So, and the reason is, you can appeal for consumers from different backgrounds. So, if you can have, uh, let's just say, an Asian, Hispanic, Israeli like me, something like this, all sitting in the same group, I represent the Israelis, I know how they're going to buy, you can, Israel, you can represent Asians, we can attract a much better group of, uh, of buyers instead of just Asians, for example, you would only attract them because you happen to hire only people like you and you're just having a culture of just Asians. And then no one else is going to feel comfortable going over there. So kind of diversify. Make sure that no one puts everybody uh, that are just from the same school or so on. There's only people from my school, world friends or my neighborhood or my area. Anyone that loves football is going to be in my team. This is not going to work. You want to make sure that it is comfortable for everybody to be in that place and then Eventually, if you hire the right people that have the technical skills, the company would grow, and that's going to be a good vibe, and people would be happy.
3: I remember when culture met you just got a ping pong table. It's like, oh, we have ping pong. We serve lattes on Friday and beer on Thursday, and everybody's like, oh, my God, it's the best place ever, and those were the early dot-com days, but now the millennials are teaching us lessons. They dictate what our culture is going to be. It's gonna be independent. You know, I noticed this big shift of actually the workers coming and letting you know what they're willing to do. That's a great culture. When you have employees that come in and say, you know what, I'm really good at this and I'm willing to do this and I do it so well and I'm gonna bank on that, that's a good culture. You know, what we found was creating the environment where people got to be themselves. I had a rule that if you gossiped about someone, you got fired, even if it was true. Don't talk about your coworkers, have the respect. It doesn't matter what background they come from. When you show up to work, you have a common goal. And there would be nothing where someone wouldn't be able to be themselves because that's the unique thing of every employee you have. Like Yosef was saying, that culturally different group. If you suppress ideas or ideas aren't good, it's scary to raise your hand in your group. That's a bad culture. You know, you don't need a ping pong table. You need people motivated and happy. They'll work. I'll work for less if I'm happy every day. If I can walk in and be motivated, like, hey, I'm so happy to see you, or, hey, I had a really bad day, or, hey, I'm late today, and not have that fear of, why are you late? What did you do? You know, those those over management moments. Um, I found really opened up. You know, uh, a more uh, tenured. Um, employee status, like all kinds of things change with just saying, you know what, you can be late. Like we trust you. We trust you. That's the first step. If you don't trust them, fire them fast.
0: And also the last thing is, I think it's very important. And then we'll wrap up for today. But I think it's good if your employees build the culture with you and everybody in the organization takes part. But anyways, I just want to wrap this up. I want to say thank you to Stormy, Eric, Yosef. I want to, I'm going to drop their social. So at Stormy Simon, at Eric Osu, uh, and at YFL Martin if you want to go follow them. And if you love this type of content, successstorypodcast.com. I appreciate all of you for coming today. I hope you got a lot out of this. Give a round of applause these incredible business leaders. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for coming Thank on. Thank
3: you,
0: guys. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show, and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know.